I would love to have you find 1 John in your Bibles. Uh, if you need a Bible, there are red ones um, somewhere around you on the row that you're in. You can also scan the QR code in the bulletin, and um, it'll open up uh, a Bible app so you can follow along electronically if you'd like to do that. I uh, highly encourage you to, uh, yeah, just to sort of bring your Bibles with you into worship. It's, uh, it's our text. It's where we, where we turn uh, for God's leading and direction for our lives. And over the next couple of weeks, uh, really nine weeks, we're going to be in this series uh, in the book of 1 John. 1 John is this um, spirit-inspired pastoral letter. Uh, John, being a pastor at heart, is writing a letter to, uh, to this Christian community, to the church, and encouraging them. And, and so I would love to have you, uh, from now till the end of our series, which is um, right actually before Advent begins, right around the time of Thanksgiving, to just make 1 John a part of your uh, life, your devotional life, to read it, meditate on it, um, pray about it. I, I think it, it, it adds like a richness to our time together when the first time we hear a text isn't on Sunday morning when we're in worship, but when we're kind of living with it all week, then all of a sudden what happens when we gather for worship is God makes connections and the Spirit is moving in ways that we, we wouldn't have uh, expected otherwise. And so we'd love to have you do that. This series is called That You May Know. That you may know. And Howard and Kathy, uh, which is great to have them back from sabbatical, by the way, um, did a great job opening up the series last week. And this whole series on 1 John is, and the title comes from a passage in 1 John chapter 5. Toward the end of the letter, 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 to 13. And as, as John writes, his whole argument is kind of flowing in this one direction. And it ends, it sort of culminates in 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 to 13, and, and here's what it says. And this is the testimony, that God has given us eternal life, and that life is in His Son. Whoever has life, has the Son, <clears throat> excuse me, has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. <clears throat> so, uh, we're going to be just uh, taking our time moving through this passage, and we'll get to this, this particular one, 1 John chapter 5, uh, in about six weeks. But we'd love to have you in the meantime, uh, we'd love to have you memorize this. Like, this can be a, a great spiritual practice, is just memorizing Scripture. This is a, a couple of short verses. By the way, I'm guessing some of you, if you wanted to, could commit the whole book of 1 John to memory. Like, that, that wouldn't be too hard for many of you. Um, and so, if that's something that God prompts you to do, that'd be, that'd be awesome. It'd be, be great <clears throat> to just uh, have this as being a part of you. So, let's take a look at 1 John. This is the passage for today. 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 5. The word of the Lord. This is the message we have heard from him. And that him is Jesus. This is a message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Now, if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie, and we do not live out of the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, purifies us from all sin. Now, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. 
If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now, if we claim that we have not sinned, we make Him out to be a liar and His word is not in us. My dear children, you hear the like, the, the pastoral tone, I mean, John like writing sort of tenderly to the church. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also the sins of the whole world. Um, one of the things I love about this is sort of like the, the deeper you go into uh, passages like this, the deeper you um, can continue to go. Uh, this has been such a rich thing over the last couple of weeks to, to just kind of immerse um, myself and other teaching pastors in this passage. And I hope over the next couple of minutes, the next 20, 25 minutes, to just point to a couple of things. Now, a couple of things that John highlights, we're not going to be able to exhaust everything that he talks about, but I hope that um, we can sort of point to a few things and then you personally, as a family, as a small group or missional community, can, can continue to just ask the questions, okay, what does this mean for us? How do we live this out? When I hear this passage, I'm reminded of a story of my childhood. Uh, I was probably somewhere between 10 and 12 years old, and a um, little back history to this, on my fifth, uh, when I was five years old, on Christmas, we got this key in a big package, it was a big package, we started opening the packages, and there are smaller packages inside, and it, way down in the middle, we get this key, and we have no idea what the key goes to. So we start looking around the house, start looking outside, we look in the garage, and there is a brand new Honda four-wheeler, Honda 300 four-wheeler, and it was like amazing. So <clears throat> we spent so many hours, like riding, my sister and I riding this four-wheeler and having fun. So fast forward about six, seven years, so I'm maybe like 11, 12 years old, and my mom was given the spiritual gift of worry. I don't know how many of you can like relate to that, but like every time I would start the four-wheeler, she'd like, oh, be careful, right? Don't go too fast, wear your helmet, you know, all that stuff. And of course, I paid very close attention to what she said, uh, as all 11 to 12-year-old boys would. And so this one particular day, I come home from school, I jump on the four-wheeler, and I go flying down, and we have like 25 acres behind the house, and our neighbors have another 40 on this side, another 40 on the other side. So I just have this freedom to roam. It was amazing. And so I'm flying through the field, and I was not wearing my helmet, uh, because you don't look very cool with the helmet on, and like what happens if one of those girls you like happens to like drive by, and you're wearing a helmet, how lame is that? Um, Please wear your helmets, by the way. This was my mistake. So anyhow, so I'm flying through the field. I'm doing, like, everything my mom tells me not to do. And, of course, I have an accident. Like, I, there's this, this big hole in the field that I didn't know was there. The weeds were kind of growing up. And the whole front end of the four-wheeler, one tire goes down in the hole, and the four-wheeler flips over. My foot comes off the foot peg. And the engine, like, I still have my, my, my thumb on the throttle, and so the tire spins up the back of my leg, taking all of my skin with it. Uh, some of you are nodding like you've been there. You know what this is like. It doesn't feel good, but you don't pay attention to how it feels. You first of all, like, what do you do? You like check to make sure nobody saw you, and then you set the four-wheeler back up, and you make sure it's all right, and there was no damage, thankfully. And then I got on it, started the back up, and started to drive up to the house, and that's when the pain started to set in. Like, this is a problem. I had shorts on. I looked down, and it's just like carnage down there. And so I, um, of course, I wanted to hide it. Right? I didn't like go to my parents and say, I messed up, I had an accident, please help me. 
I know you all would have done that. I didn't. Um, learn from me. I tried to hide it. And so I realized there's dirt and grass and stuff in it. I need to clean it out. So I go um, upstairs and, and go into the bathroom, draw a nice hot bath, and I jump in it and hold in a scream because, again, I'm trying to hide this. Um, and so I get it all, finally get it all washed out. And I uh, go and put some, like, long pants on so that, you know, it, it will cover it. And realize, like, that feel of, like, the fabric rubbing against it was, was just intolerable. So uh, in my infinite wisdom, as an adolescent young man, I decide to take a soccer sock and just sort of, like, put it over top of it to keep the fabric from rubbing against it. And so I went to bed like that. And I woke up, and I went to school like that. And I came home, and I thought, like, this is kind of, like, it's kind of gooey. <laughs> Sorry. I'm like, I should probably change this sock, only to discover the sock is now part of my body. It is just, like, grafted in. Um, and that's when I realized, like, I'm in trouble. <laughs> I've got problems, and the problems are more than I can deal with. Do you know, like, this is our, this is our human tendency, like when we blow it, when we mess up, we make mistakes, our first impulse is to hide it, to try to cover it up, to try to like sort of, and, and, and this, is, this is what we find in the Garden of Eden, right? We learn about human nature, lots of things about human nature from the Garden of Eden. Man, woman, Adam and Eve, made to walk with God, like made to live a life in connection with their creator. And they do, but they blow it, they mess up, they choose to sin, And the moment they choose to sin, all of a sudden, they become aware of their own nakedness. They become aware that they've they've got problems. There's darkness now inside of them. And they feel this disconnection from their creator, from God. And so what do they do? They try to hide themselves. Um, I should pull this one. They sew fig leaves together. This is what happens to a fig leaf, apparently, when you let it set out. I borrowed a fig leaf from... uh, some of the journey family, and it kind of shriveled up like this. So this one is still sort of maintaining its, its shape. This is what fig leaf looks like. And so they take these fig leaves, and they sew them together somehow, and they make these kind of like makeshift coverings to cover up their shame. I want you to imagine how pathetic Adam and Eve might look, right? Like this kid with a soccer sock pulled over this, this wound, um, and they, 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 they hear, Adam and Eve hear God coming toward them, and they hide. They're covering themselves with their, their little fig leaves, and, and they're hiding from God. And God comes, and he pursues them. And he says, Adam, like, where are you? And Adam says, like, I'm, a, I'm here. I'm ashamed because I'm naked. And all of a sudden, the truth comes out. Now, here's the thing. What does God do? What does God do when he finds these pathetic individuals hiding, trying to cover their shame. We, ser- we learn so much, not about human nature, but about the nature of God. God covers them. He says he makes garments of skin, which I tend to take as leather. I picture Adam and Eve as bikers in the garden, right? <clears throat> I was gonna, I, I, somebody gave me a pair of chaps as well, but I thought chaps don't really do justice to the point I'm trying to make here about covering our shame. Um, <laughs> This is what God does. He, he trades them, their fig leaves, their, their pathetic attempt to hide it, and he covers them. He, he gives them these garments. He helps them be restored to relationship. This is the heart of God. 
that this is what God does. He takes our attempts to hide our shame and he actually clothes us. He covers us. And this is what my parents did. Uh, I was very thankful to have very gracious parents. They didn't condemn me. They didn't say, we told you so. They said, like, let's, let's figure this out. Let's bandage this thing up. Let's get it healed. This is, this is how God responds to us when we simply own up to the darkness inside of us. This is what I hear. This is like where my mind goes when I hear John say this in verse 6. He says, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. I mean, God is brilliant, perfect light. This is God's essence, God's nature. God is truth, and, and God is purity, and God is goodness. God is pure light, and in him there is no darkness at all. There is no evil There is no falsehood. There is no inauthenticity in God. It would be against everything that makes God God to do those things. And so when all of a sudden we hear God is light, when we experience God as light, the first thing that probably happens inside of us is we become aware of our own shadows. Right? We become aware of all the places that we are not living in the light. And this happens all throughout the scriptures. Um, Remember the story of Isaiah, Isaiah who became this uh, prophet of God? In Isaiah chapter 6, he has this vision of the Lord, and, and the glory of God fills the temple, and it says Isaiah, uh, all of a sudden, he, seeing this, the light of God shine on his life, he just like says, God, I, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. God, you have no idea what has come out of my mouth. He's just aware of his own brokenness and his own sin. Um, Peter you remember Peter's, like, one of his first interactions with Jesus. He's fishing, and, and all of a sudden, they've caught no f- fish all night and caught no fishes. And you sing the song. And Jesus comes to Peter and says, hey, try this. Like, throw your nets on the other side. And Peter does. And there's this miraculous catch of fish. And all of a sudden, Peter realizes he is in the presence of someone incredibly special. Now, he doesn't have it all figured out of who Jesus is yet. That's going to take a lot more time. But he just knows this man it is something special. And Peter, when the light of Christ shines on him for the first time, do you know what his reaction is? It says he falls at Jesus' knees, and he says, get away from me, Lord, because I am a sinful man. Um, John, the apostle who ends up writing First John, he also writes Revelation. It says when Jesus, the risen Christ, appears to him on the Isle of Patmos and gives him the revelation, John's first response, John who had walked with Jesus, who had seen Jesus, who had seen the resurrected Jesus, when Jesus appears in the brilliance of his glory, John falls on his face as though dead. That's how he responds. Our first impulse when God's light shines on us is fear. It's, it's to hide, it's to be aware of all of the ways we are not light. And then what does God do? God looks at Isaiah, and he says, yeah, I know you're a man of unclean lips. I know you live among a people of unclean lips, right? I mean, God doesn't actually say that, but that's how God responds. He takes, sends an angel, picks up a, a coal from the altar, and puts it on his lips and says, okay, your lips are clean. Your sin has been atoned for. Now let's get on with business. Let's, let's start doing, doing the work of, of the kingdom of God. Uh, Peter, Jesus looks at him, probably lifts his head and says, Peter, don't be afraid. Let's, let's go fish for people. We've got work to do. He, he looks at John falling on his face as though dead, and he, he says, John, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. You see, the light of God is not intended to blind us. It's not intended to hurt us or burn us 
which is what we tend to think when we have been living in darkness for so long. It's like when you're asleep and somebody walks in the room and flips the light on. Like at first, it's like it hurts and you want to sort of pull the covers back up over your head. But the light of God is not meant to blind us or to hurt us. It's meant to heal us. It's meant to cleanse us. It's meant to uh, lead us into a brand new life. This is who God is and this is how God's light functions in our life. Take a look at verse 6. Um, John says this, if, and he makes these two if statements, and the word if, it can also be translated whenever. So let's read it that way. Whenever we claim to have fellowship with him, and yet we walk in the darkness, we lie, and we do not live out of the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' Son purifies us from all sin. Do you know what I think God wants from us more than anything else? Is honesty. Not perfection. God never expects perfection. He never uh, asks us for that. He just wants honesty. If we say that we have fellowship with God and yet we're walking in darkness, we're trying to hide, we're trying to sort of put our own fig leaves together and just be good enough, right? To just sort of like do enough good stuff and put enough money in the offering and have good enough attendance at church and and try to not swear too much and not watch those movies or whatever it is that we feel like we're trying to earn God's favor, we are sort of deceiving ourselves, right? We say we're walking in the light, but there's actually this darkness still inside of us. What God wants for us is just honesty, just to sort of step into the light. Now, how many of you know, like John uses this word two times. He says, if we um, claim to have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, and then he says, or if we walk in the light. How many of you know you're walking somewhere? Like we are all walking somewhere. Our life is not stationary. We are moving somewhere. Um, We're on a journey. Is that a great name for a church, right? Um, We're on a journey, and our choices are leading us in a given direction. And Jesus himself says this. He says there are two roads. There is this broad road that leads to destruction, and there is this narrow road that leads to life. And we're walking one of those two destinations toward one of those. Um, And so John, like he's pointing out this idea that our choices matter. Because our choices, moment by moment, day by day, our choices will become patterns, will become habits. And our habits will become our character, and our character will become our destiny. Our choices matter. Um, The more we make given choices, the more they become a part of us. They become ingrained patterns of behavior. And the more we live out of those habits, the more it becomes a part of us and it becomes our character. And as we begin to move this direction, it will determine our destiny, the direction where our lives are headed. That's why it's so hard to change. How many of you have had a bad habit and you've wanted to change it and you've, um, you know, you've said like, you know what, this is just who I am can't do it. Or you, you know, you've, and you're true. You're, you're right in saying that. It has become a part of you because of the choices you've made along the way. That's why it's so hard to change because we have this long history, this like inertia, momentum that is pushing us further down this path. That's why it's so hard to change. And any matter of the will is not going to do it. Just waking up and saying, I'm not going to do this anymore. How does that work for you? It doesn't work. I mean, I've, I've told myself, I'm not going to do these particular things 
hundreds of times until the next time I do them, right? And so it can't be just a matter of the will that says I'm going to change the direction I'm moving. Our choices, patterns, patterns, character, character, destiny, and we make a choice on which direction we're moving. And here's what salvation is. Here's what it means to be saved as a biblical language. There's all sorts of language about this. There's in the Bible, they're being born again, uh, being saved, being, uh, coming into the kingdom of God. The Bible uses all sorts of language. And what happens, what salvation is, biblically speaking, is that moment we choose to say, I am going in a way that is leading to destruction. My choices, my behaviors, my patterns, my character is moving away from Christ, and I am going to choose to turn around and not to fix myself, and not to get everything sort of okay, and then come to Christ. I'm just going to choose to say, God, I can't change myself, and I am choosing to turn toward you. And what we do is we choose to say, Jesus, I'm going to accept what you have done for me through your life, through your death, through giving yourself away, and through your resurrection. I'm going to choose to believe in you, put my trust in you, that you did what I don't have the power to do. And what happens the moment we do that, the moment our heart, do you know, by the way, there is no sinner's prayer in the Bible? Did you know that? You can't find it. Like, you can't find a sinner's prayer that says you have to pray this sort of particular prayer, and then, like, something sort of happens in that moment. Um, All sorts of, Zacchaeus, like, has this encounter with Jesus, and we don't ever find he prays a sinner's prayer. The thief on the cross, like, he he has an encounter with Jesus, and all he says is, like, Lord, today remember me in your kingdom. His heart turns. The moment our heart turns towards Jesus, and we cry out for help, and we step into his light, and we ask for forgiveness, we are saved. We are born again. And the moment that happens, we're told, like, that God's spirit, the advocate, floods into our life and begins to change us from the inside out. Um, So salvation, it is always a personal choice. God honors human dignity. And God has given human beings agency. He's given us the ability to choose, to choose which direction our life is going to go. And God doesn't, doesn't manipulate us in that. He allows us to choose. And so choosing to follow Jesus is a personal choice. It's a choice that we have to make. But here's the thing. It, it's personal, but it's never individual. Because the moment we turn around, the moment we orient ourselves toward Jesus, we find that we are surrounded by a whole community of faith that's saying the same thing. We are going to step in the light together, and we are going to pursue Jesus together. We are going to have fellowship with one another, John says. So you are not alone. The song that we sang, are surrounded by people who are on the same journey with you, moving toward Jesus, choosing Jesus day after day so it becomes a pattern, so that it becomes a part of our character, so that it becomes our destiny. That's what discipleship is. This is what holds a church together. Do you know what doesn't hold a church together? Saying like, well, we're all pretty much in the same sort of income range. We all speak the same language. We all have the same background. You know, all sorts of things like that. Those superficial things will never hold a church together. There is only one power on earth that can do that, that can hold us together as different as we are, and that is the power of the resurrected Christ. And as we keep Jesus in the center of our focus together, we will find ourselves in fellowship, in community together. Um, I love, I love First John, by the way, if you can't tell. It kind of makes me excited. 
Um, John says in 1 John 1, 9, uh, maybe the most famous verse in this passage, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us or cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I mean, is that beautiful? That it is God's nature to forgive. And confession is this act of choosing to step out of the darkness into the light. That's all confession is. Is I've been trying to hide it, and I'm choosing not to hide it any longer. And the moment we choose to, to move from darkness into the light of God, to stop hiding, God forgives us. God's nature is to forgive, and God is not going to go against his nature for you. You are not going to be the exception to the rule. Can I promise you that? Like, on the authority of Jesus Christ, you are not going to be an exception to the rule. That God's nature is to forgive. Like, sometimes people will they'll, we'll have a conversation and they'll find out I'm a pastor, and they'll say, oh, like, yeah, it's great that you can do the whole church thing, but I, I can never come to your church. I'm like, well, why not? Well, I, I'm just like, I'm way too much of a sinner. And my favorite response is, well, that's pretty much the only requirement. Like, Jesus can't help people who are self-righteous. I mean, Jesus can't help people who don't know they're sick. The people Jesus ministers to are those who just say, like, I'm, I'm a sinner. I'm sick. I can't change myself. And Jesus, I, I think sometimes we miss how much he loves to forgive, that he has given his life to forgive us, to forgive us. Confession is this act of, of just stepping into the light. If you've been living in darkness, if there's a, a part of, like maybe you're saved, like maybe you're, you're moving toward Jesus, but there's still a part of your life that's still, you're trying to hide the darkness, and it, it's taken a toll on you, it's taken a toll on your relationships, it's taken a toll on your attitude, and you realize like God's Spirit is working in your life, and He's saying, it's time to let the light of Christ shine on this, and it feels like it's going to hurt, and it feels like it's going to blind you and burn you. The truth is it's going to heal you. And so just stepping into the light, uh, to allow God to begin to cleanse you. It is an incredible gift from God. Um, and so there are lots of churches, lots of denominations that focus solely on sin. To say, you know what a job is as a church is to purge sin from the church. We're going to have a sinless church. Um, I've actually had people, church leaders, say it is our job as church leaders to kill sin within the church. How's that going to work? Like, how do you go about doing that, killing sin inside the church? Um, that was not in my job description, unless it was in the fine print. Um, and I don't see it in Jesus' example either. Do you know what I think our job is as a church? Is to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Because what you focus on will become clear, and everything else will get fuzzy. If you just, like, put all of your attention on the cross for just a second... Right, just focus as much as you can visually, just like really, right here on the cross. And notice what happens. If I'm standing over here, I get really fuzzy. Like you can, you can hardly see me because your attention is there. So if as a church, if as an individual, you choose to focus on your sin, do you know what's going to happen? Sin is going to become clear and it's going to become bigger and everything else is going to fade away. But do you know what happens if you focus on Jesus and you make him the center of your life, and you pursue him, is all of a sudden, this tendency to sin, is, it's going to lose its appeal. Because you're going to find yourself more and more stepping into the light, moment by moment, day by day, and it is a beautiful thing to do that together. So this is what we do as a church, is we keep our eyes fixed on 
Jesus. Now, um, I want to sort of like wrap this up. But here, this, so this, this is deeply personal. I, I, I hope and I pray that, that we will all have the courage, if there are areas of darkness in our life, not to keep hiding them, not to keep repressing them, but to just let the healing light of Christ shine on them. And here's the thing. Here's how this matters to our neighbors, to our friends is that when we realize that it is a pure gift from God, that he has taken our fig leaves, he's clothed us, that he has given us salvation, and it's a gift from God that we don't earn it, we become the least judgmental people on the planet. Because who in the world am I to go around pointing out the ill-fitting fig leaves of others? My fig leaf has been taken away right? And God has clothed me. It's a gift of grace. Who are we as a church to go around saying, pardon me, sir, your fig leaf is not quite doing its job, right? <laughs> Sorry. But that's what churches do. We, we go around judging people then who sin differently than we do. And if we understand that this is all a gift, we will become the least judgmental people on the planet, and we, on behalf of Christ, will move into the world, and we will flood this world with forgiveness. In, in, in Ezekiel, I'll end with this. In Ezekiel chapter 47, Ezekiel has this vision of the temple of God in Jerusalem. And, he, and this God is speaking to him, giving this vision, and there's a stream of water that's flowing out on the east side of the temple. And it's this, this trickle of water. And then he, he starts walking the water. God takes him into the water, and he walks about a third of a mile. And all of a sudden, the, the water is ankle deep. And he walks another third of a mile, and now the water is waist deep. And another third of a mile, now the water is, is, is like chest deep. And another third of a mile, and now it's like, it's too big. You can't even, you have to swim through it. And it just keeps flowing and flowing and getting deeper and deeper. And this stream coming out of the temple, everywhere it goes, it brings life and healing. It actually floods into the Dead Sea, the sea where nothing can live because it's too salty, right? And some of you maybe have even been there. And it says this, this river flows into the Dead Sea and it just purges all the salt from the Dead Sea. And all of a sudden, the Dead Sea is full of living things and there are fruit trees growing on either side of the bank of the river. We, as people of God, are meant to partner with God to flood this world with forgiveness, to bring healing the healing that Christ offers to our neighbors, to our friends, to our family, to our coworkers, to be this, these agents of healing in the world. And so I'd like to close. I said that like four times now. I promise this is it. Uh, I want to close with a prayer of confession. And don't pray to, if, if, if you don't mean it. Um, seriously, I mean, it's not something we do to try to earn favor with God. But if you're at a place where you're just saying, you know what, uh, I... I want to confess. I, I, I realize that there's darkness inside of me and I want to step into the light. I invite you to pray this prayer with me. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, in word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will 
and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Sometimes, sometimes it's helpful to hear the voice of another person because sometimes it's difficult to hear the voice of God. In the name of Jesus Christ, I say to you, brothers and sisters, your sins are forgiven.